We're going to pick up with the end of that chapter and move on into uh, the third chapter. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will, uh, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, this is an awesome awful glimpse of that day and yet you want us to have that glimpse and so Lord will you teach us today by the power of your Holy Spirit will you move our hearts move them to Jesus and we pray in his precious name Amen Please be seated. Well, you got your uh, clocks turned, evidently. And uh, that's a good thing. I figure there are in this room uh, two kinds of people when it comes to the uh, the fall back and spring forward. Uh, I learned this from my wife, Connie, because we are uh, two different kinds of people in that. Uh, she is in the wise group, and I am not. <laughs> one, one group, uh, this is her group, says, uh, this is great. I get an extra hour of sleep. And the other group, my group, and some of you say, oh, I get to stay up an extra hour tonight (laughs) and not feel it quite as bad. Uh, Now, I'm not judging people in either group, but uh, the whole idea, uh, you may be feeling a, a certain amount of tiredness according to which group you are in. 
today. When we think of God, I think we seldom think in terms of him getting tired of something. And yet, this passage before us uses that actual word, that phrase about his weariness. So let's take a look at at this passage. It begins, uh, verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. What in the world? Does he come to the point where he says, I'm tired of all this? No more? Well, evidently, he does. And that's what he's addressing here. Now, remember, in, in Malachi, because we've, we've been going through this, it's the same pattern where God says something to these people. By the way, these people that he says, I have loved you. And then he, he uses the rest of the book and tells them ways that he expresses his love. But here we, we, uh, we, he makes a statement, and then he expresses what they are thinking or perhaps what some of them say to that kind of a thing. And then he puts things in the right perspective, the truthful perspective. And we see that same pattern here. So he, he starts with saying, you've wearied the Lord with your words, and then we see uh, the first part of the response, and I've called it uh, arrogant response number one. Uh, but you say, how have we wearied him? Now, why is that arrogant? Well, each point that God makes, the people talk back to him. Now, there's a difference between responding to God and talking back to him. If you have children, you know the difference. You can tell the difference when it is uh, an honest, sincere question back to you or when it is the, uh, the virtual stomp of the foot and talking back and rebelling against you. And that's what we are seeing here. Uh, he's saying, look, your, your prolonged protests have become tiresome. Back in uh, chapter 2, verse 13, we looked at this last week. He says, the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning uh, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Now, repetition is not the problem. It's not the problem uh, that he's dealing with. And in, in the New Testament, we see Jesus talking about the persistent widow. That's actually a good thing in that case. And he's using it to teach about prayer, that persistence in prayer is, is a good thing. He is not offended by that. That's not what we are uh, seeing. There's a difference between sincere persistence and whining and groaning and grumbling against God because we don't like the way he's doing something. That's when it becomes an arrogant response. 
Look at the response. Uh, their response, again, is it's disbelief. We don't get it. How have we wearied him? Who, us? I, I don't see it, is what they're saying. Then here's the answer to that. By saying, again, 17, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So what they're saying is that, that evildoers prosper materially and uh, the wicked get rich. Here's the implication and here's the problem. The implication is we who do good, and by the way, they weren't doing good, but that's the implication here. We who do good, we're not getting rewarded for that. And those who do evil, they get rewarded. So we're being treated like we're doing the evil, and this isn't right. Do you get it? And they even to the point of saying, where is this God of justice? See how arrogant that is? Accusing God of injustice. Demanding that the omniscient, omnipotent, perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly wise and sovereign creator of the universe demanding that he defend himself because what he's doing doesn't fit in with our puny view of justice. That's what's being addressed here. Here is a God who managed the universe, who raises up nations and causes them to fall, raises up rulers, causes them to fall, who is in control of all things. And yet, they're saying... He's, he's not cutting it here. He's just not doing it. Eventually, he punishes wicked in hell and brings redeemed to heaven. And he does all of that perfectly without our help. The evil do prosper sometimes in this life. Now, some, some might think, well, you know, it's all well and good that God is a God of justice. But I look around at all the injustices going on in our world and are permitted to occur in this life. The evil are prospering and sometimes the righteous are afflicted. So some might ask the question, uh, what good is it to push God's judgments off to some future day of judgment if evil in this world goes unchecked. The bottom line, they're getting away with it, God, as if we need to inform him of what's going on. So I don't need to defend God. Let's look at what his answer is, his response the first thing is God's coming. 
verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold, I, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there's that word again. He talks about he's going to send his messenger. And my messenger, the word in the Hebrew is Malachi, translated, transliterated Malachi. But it's not talking about Malachi here. He's not pointing to himself, but Malachi is actually pointing to that which had already been revealed over in Isaiah 40. Let me, let me show you, and you'll see how it, it's referring to it. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level in the rough places of plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So there's two things here, two things that are being revealed. The first is that uh, a promise of a messenger, and here's one place, you know, a lot of these things, commentators are all over the place and they don't agree, but here is one place that the commentators agree that this was a prediction, it was a prophecy of the coming of John the baptizer who was preparing the way for Jesus, preparing the way for God to reveal himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first is a promise of a messenger, and then the second is promising himself. He says, I'm coming. The Lord is coming. It's promising Jesus. Jesus is the messenger of the covenant. He is the messenger of the gospel. And notice in this verse, Malachi 3.1, it uses the word suddenly, unexpectedly. Uh, the word, that word is used 25 times in the Old Testament. I didn't count them. Somebody else did. But it's used 25 times in the Old Testament. But every time that word is used, it is used pertaining to impending judgment and doom. It's going to come suddenly. And that word is used. It's connected with judgment. So let's look at what the justice will look like. Verse 2, Malachi 3, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. So this is talking about uh, the refiner's process for purification says this, verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He'll purify the sons of Levi. By the way, remember, the sons of Levi, those are the priests. Uh, Malachi's already from God, uh, spoken to the priests about how they were uh, abusing and uh, uh, hiding, actually, the message from God. So he says this, He'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness 
to the Lord. Now, let's talk about the illustration he's using here. When he talks about uh, the, the refiners, if you've ever seen it on a small scale, uh, you know, not the big refineries, but uh, uh, somebody making jewelry or, or dealing with silver, you'll see something like this, and this is what he's referring to. A, a small, portable uh, furnace. And the refiner of silver, for instance, would put uh, ore in there, and he would melt it at a very high temperature because of the fire underneath. And then what happens is the dross, the waste, that which isn't pure, comes up to the top. And the silversmith, the refiner, will get rid of that, will take it off the top, and then more will keep coming up to the top, and he keeps on doing that until his work is over. The way he can tell his work is over is as he's looking down into uh, this thing that is being refined when he can see his face perfectly reflected like a mirror, then all the impurities are gone. Then he knows his work's over. Do you see the parallel here? The parallel with what God does with his people. There are times he refines us either with discipline or sometimes even affliction. We don't always know why something's happening in our life. But I say to you all the time, everything and everyone in our life is to make us more like Jesus. If we're a child of God, that's the case. And that's a part of the refining. By the way, if you, can, if you can remember that and think that, it will cause you to look at everyone and everything in your life differently. If you know they're just here, they're not here just to afflict me. <laughs> they're here to make me more like Jesus. And, and so ultimately, that's, that's a good thing. So God refines his people says then, verse 4, the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So what we see is the refining of his people and the judgment of those that are not his people. And there's a big difference. The refining is to make us more like Jesus. The judgment is an ultimate an eternal punishment that will never end. Verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers. By the way, this is against those who, not repentant, not repentant in these things that are listed here, but these who cling to them, who make these their God, and they, they choose that over God's way against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against uh, those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, those who oppress the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourners and do not fear me. Those are the ones, says the Lord of hosts, that will experience the judgment. Now there's a problem that some have with this. 
How can one reconcile that God is a God of love? We talk about that as believers. We who are trusting in Christ alone for our eternal life, we talk about his grace, his forgiveness. He began the book by saying, I have loved you. Let me show you how. And yet here is judgment. How do you put those together? And some accuse us saying he's not a loving God if he executes judgment. So here's what's going to happen. When God comes to his people, it would not be for an immediate judgment. That's not what was predicted here. It's not what was prophesied. He could have come and it could have been an immediate judgment. He could have wiped out uh, every person in the world and no one could have complained because that's what everyone deserved. But he says, no, that's not how I'm choosing to do it. Only after I come to seek and to save that which is lost, then, then a judgment will come. So let's think about this. Because it's talking about Jesus. When we took the trip to Israel... There were many memorable moments, and I think everybody that was there had different moments that were especially touched them or meant something special to them, and, and most of us had many of those. But there's one moment that, that really uh, was moving for me. I don't know if it was for anyone else that was there, but that was when we went to Nazareth, and we stood in what are now the ruins of a synagogue where they said, this is where Jesus would have come back to. We read about it in Luke 4. And I thought about this that day. Here's what happened. It says when he went back, he did what he normally did on uh, the Sabbath, and he went in to the synagogue. That was his custom. He stood up and he read, as young men, rabbis did. And it says that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place that he wanted to read. And then he read this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stopped there mid-sentence. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And it says all eyes in the synagogue were on him. 
And then it says, he said to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Here's what he was saying. I just read to you the prophecy from Isaiah, and they all knew it was a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And he said, what I just read to you, that's about me. It's being fulfilled today. They knew what he was saying. He stopped, as I said, mid-sentence. His last words were, to proclaim the Lord's favor, his grace. Because that's what his ministry was about. He was telling them that that when he came, it was the time of God's grace and favor. And that's what he did when he walked the earth. But here's what the next phrase was. Right after, he said to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor... And he stopped. If he had read the rest of the sentence, it would have said, and the day of the vengeance of our God. The vengeance and judgment is a part of Isaiah's great prophecy. One day it will come. But it did not come in Jesus' first coming to this world. It will come when he comes again. And it will come suddenly upon those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is the day of the Lord's favor. Today, if you will trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal life, Today is the day of salvation. Call on him. Let's pray. Lord, will you give us hearts enabled by your Holy Spirit to respond to that call to receive Jesus Christ and him alone, depending upon him for our eternal life, not upon our works or anything we can do. That's all dross. That's all waste. It's impure. But depending upon Jesus alone, we ask this in his precious name. Amen.